Hi, I'm Anthony Taylor, and welcome to season two of the Mental Fitness Podcast, the podcast where you're going to hear from a fantastic range of people about their personal stories and ideas on how to live a great life and look after your mental fitness while doing it. You're going to learn about resilience, emotional intelligence, how to identify our strengths, and what we can do to support our good mental health. Here's a snapshot of what we've got in store for you this week. We don't listen to understand. We listen to reply, to respond. It's like, you know, Anthony, hurry up and say what you're going to say because I'm going to get my two cents in there. No, listen to what you're saying and why you're saying it. And I think if we did that and stopped screaming at each other, because we can't, we can't understand each other. If you're screaming at me and I'm screaming at you, you can't understand me. I can't understand you. But if I take the time to listen, to listen to what you're saying and try to figure out why you're saying it, that's the start of a dialogue. So I'm really excited to be bringing you series two, and I hope you join us throughout the entirety of this. And as ever, if you like the podcast, please give us a like uh, or subscribe to the show as well. It takes just a minute, but it's going to help the podcast reach more people. Okay, let's crack on with the show. I'm going to be talking to a quite remarkable person in the shape of Terry Tucker. Terry is a cancer warrior. He's a former policeman, a Chicago policeman, a hostage negotiator, and a basketball coach. He is also the author of Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. So without further ado, let's crack on with episode one of series two. Terry, welcome to the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure and a privilege to have you on today. I'm really excited for our conversation. You've got a fascinating story that I'm hoping you're going to be able to share with with our listeners and really give some great insights. But as always, what I'd like to do is start the conversation off by asking, what does mental fitness mean to you? Well, Anthony, before I answer that, let me say thank you for allowing me the privilege really to, to be a guest on your podcast. I It's people like you that allow people like me to, to have a forum and hopefully between the two of us, we can make a difference in somebody's life today. So thank you for that. Mental fitness. Uh, I, I guess it it would probably be the measure of a person's, I guess, fortitude or courage or confidence that would be used to determine, I guess, how successful they would be in an endeavor, given what their limitations or what their their shortcomings are. I, I, I guess that's the best way I would define it. I think that's a really good answer in terms of, like I say, that measure of their fortitude, um, and I said to apply that within whatever limitations to those kind of roles. You've had a fascinating career, haven't you, with spanning many different you know roles and things you've done. You've been a police officer, you've been a hostage negotiator, a basketball coach, a business owner, um, and now recently, as you put it, a cancer warrior as well. Yeah, I, I listening to you say that, I kind of look at it like, gee, one of these days I got to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up kind of thing. You know, I've had so many different jobs. So, yeah, and and they've all really been a necessity out of my circumstances in life, whether, you know, it was after I graduated from college or my wife lost her job and she's the primary breadwinner and, and we had to move somewhere else. So, you know, I just had to be open to new opportunities and new possibilities. Now, when you look back over those career and those different jobs, um, which one's been the most challenging and, and which did you find the most rewarding? 
It's interesting when I look back on my life, you know, my grandfather, I, I grew up in, in the city of Chicago in the United States and probably the third largest city in the U.S. And my grandfather was a police officer in Chicago from 1924 to 1954. So he was there during the time when alcohol was prohibited. He lived through the Great Depression. He also lived through the kind of the gangsters in, in the United States. And and it wasn't really that I wanted to follow in his footsteps, but I, I loved the stories. And, and he died when I was like seven years old. So I don't remember a lot of them, but my grandmother lived until I, I was in college. So I got to hear a lot of those stories. So my passion, my purpose, I always felt was to be in law enforcement. My grandfather was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun. Wasn't a serious injury, he was shot in the ankle but my dad remembered the stories my grandmother told about the knock on the door of, you know, Mrs. Tucker, please grab your son. Your husband's been shot. Come with us. And he was like, absolutely not. You know, he had my whole life planned out. I was like, you're going to go to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get out. You're going to go into business. You're going to get married, have 2.4 kids, live in a house in the suburbs. That was what my dad wanted me to do. That wasn't what I wanted to do. And I took those first two jobs in business because my dad was sick when I graduated from college and, and eventually died of cancer. And I didn't want to upset him. I mean, he did what he did for me because he loved me, not because he was trying to hurt me in any way. And so I was trying to respect his wishes, but I didn't, those weren't my passions. When I worked for Wendy's, I worked for uh, Wendy's International, the hamburger chain uh, in their corporate headquarters when I first got out of college. And I learned a lot, met a lot of great people, but it wasn't my passion. And then I went into healthcare administration and great time, met a lot of good people, learned a lot of good stuff, but again, not my passion. So literally my passion was to become a policeman. And I did that at 37 years old. So I was a 37 year old rookie policeman, which by most accounts is old. And I, I remember the, I took a whole lot more Tylenol than I think everybody else did when I was in the police academy just because I was so sore. So that was that was my passion. And that was the thing I loved. And, you know, I, I was an undercover narcotics investigator. I was a hostage negotiator. And those were those were also a lot of fun. And that was my passion. And I loved it. And I couldn't wait to get up in the morning and go to work. And it's like, you know, what are we going to do? Who are we going to help? How are we going to make a difference? I remember I didn't know what I wanted to do when I left college. And I fell into the world of PR because someone said, you'd be good at the gift of the gab. You know, you'd be great at it. So I did that. And like you, sounds like I met some great people. I had a great career. I did pretty well out of it. Um, but I find myself age 40. So a bit like yourself, I broke from a divorce and, and questioning my life and, and unemployed at the time. I'd just been made redundant, even though I'd reached, you know, running a, a large department in a big business in communications. And I just thought, what do I want to do with my life? So I took some time out to think about that. And the difference that it makes when you find what you really want to do. Yeah, it, it, it really does. I mean, when you when you get up in the morning and you can't wait to go to work and, and I don't want people to think that that their purpose has to be their job. It doesn't. You know, I mean, you can have a job over here that pays the bills, but your purpose is, you know, painting or writing or volunteer work, whatever it is. That can be your purpose, but you have a job that we all need to, to pay the bills. But for me, my purpose was my job. It was being in law enforcement. So I, I just don't want people to think that, oh, my, my purpose has to be my job. It doesn't. You can have your purpose somewhere else, but it's important to find that purpose. It's important, it's important to find it, but it's, I think, more important to look for it 
to be open to it, you know, and, and not because I know people that just kind of throw up their hands at, you know, say age 40 and be like, you know what, I'm, I'm not searching anymore. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And, and I always remember the, the story of Colonel Sanders, the, who started Kentucky Fried Chicken. He started that franchise when he was in his 60s, after he retired. Now, I don't know if that was his purpose in life. I'm going to assume that it was. But can you imagine if at 40, he would have said, no, you know what, I'm just going to do what I'm doing here and, and just go through the motions. So if you have a passion in your heart, if you have a purpose that you know burns in your soul and it scares you, I'm going to tell you to go ahead and do it. Because at the end of your life, the things you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be the things that you didn't do. And by that time, it's going to be too late to go back and do them. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And, and you're right, because so often, you know, we see on the internet, you know, YouTube, uh, YouTube and Facebook and things, you've got to find a job that fits your purpose. And I think you make a really important point. You don't. If you do, then that's brilliant. You know, I found that with my job now, coaching and training, and, and, and you've done that with yours. But if you don't, it can be something else. And I think that's a really important point. People shouldn't put the pressure on themselves to think, oh, my God, I'm stuck in this job now and I've got no purpose. It can be your per your job can be your purpose to provide for your family, and then you can do your other purpose on the sideline, like you said, writing, painting, whatever it may be. So I think that's yeah, that's really important. You've written a fantastic book called Sustainable Excellence: Ten Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. Um, and I, I've been absolutely really enjoyed reading. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I think I've learned some really interesting things about yourself. Um, how did you find the process of, of writing that? And probably before that, what led you to write it? So the book was really born out of two conversations I had. One was, you mentioned I was a former basketball coach, and I had a player who moved to the area of the country where my wife and I live. And my wife and I had a dinner with her and her boyfriend. And I remember saying to her one day, I'm really excited that you're living close, and I can kind of watch you find and live your purpose. And she got real quiet for a while and she kind of looked at me and she's like, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I have no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about. Your life should be about finding that purpose. And once you find it, live it. So that was one conversation. The second conversation was with a young man from college who connected with me on LinkedIn. And he was like, what do you think are the most important things I should learn to not only be successful in business or my job, but to be successful in life? And I didn't want to give them the, you know, get up early, work hard, help others kind of thing. Not that those aren't important. They are incredibly important. But I kind of felt that they have been done a lot, so to speak. I wanted to see if I could come up with something different, something that would resonate in his soul, to be honest with you. So I, I wrote down a bunch of, of, of ideas, thoughts, points. It took me a while. And eventually, I came up with these 10 principles. And I sent them to him. And then I sort of stepped back. And I was like, well, you know, I've got a life story that fits under this principle, or I know somebody's life who emulates that principle. So in 2020, uh, because of my cancer diagnosis, in April of 2020, I had my leg amputated because of cancer. And in June of 2020, I started chemotherapy for the tumors in my lungs. So during that three-month period where I should have been healing and watching Netflix, I literally sat down at the computer and started writing um, stories, you know, that, that would illustrate these principles. 
And that's pretty much how sustainable excellence came to be. Wow, that's a really powerful story. When did you first, when were you first diagnosed with cancer? 2012, I was diagnosed with a rare form of melanoma that appeared on the bottom of my foot of all places. And I learned that apparently there's a rare form of melanoma that appears on the bottom of the feet or the palms of their hands. I mean, in the United States, there's only about 6,500 people or so that get that form of cancer every year. So it's very rare. Most, most melanomas are, you know, a spot on your skin somewhere that you got from sun exposure or something like that. So I just happened to get a rare form uh, of the disease. After I had surgeries to remove the tumor and all the lymph nodes in my groin, I was put on a weekly injection of a drug called interferon, which basically gave me two, uh, two to three days after each injection, I had flu-like symptoms. So imagine having the flu every week for two or three days for almost five years, which is, which is what I did uh, really not to cure the disease, but to sort of, as my oncologist said, to kick the can down the road. And, and then when that stopped in 2017, the disease came back. 2018, I had my foot amputated. 2019, it came back again, uh, two more surgeries. And then 2020, as I mentioned, it came back. Uh, I had an undiagnosed tumor actually in my ankle that grew large enough that it, it broke my shin bone and my entire lower leg was full of cancer. So that necessitated the amputation. And then I found out also I have tumors in my lungs, which I'm undergoing treatment for those right now. Wow. That's, yeah, it's quite a, quite a story. What sustained you through this time? Because there must have been some very dark days. I know you touched on those in the book. Uh, I can't imagine going through everything you've been through with chemotherapy and the surgery. So what really helped sustain you during this period? I guess I want your listeners to sort of understand that, you know, I mean, there's no S on my chest. I don't wear a cape. I mean, I don't I don't have all the answers. You know, I, I mean, there are days when I cry. There are days when I get down. There are days when I when I get depressed. And I guess I've come to learn that for all of us, and it doesn't have to be a cancer diagnosis, it could be something as simple as flunking a test in school or breaking up with your boyfriend or girlfriend or having a fender bender on the way to work, you know, one day, we're all going to experience pain. Pain is inevitable. Suffering, on the other hand, that's optional. That's what you do with that pain. Do you do you get down in there in the muck and wallow in it and woe is me and you know, and all that? Or do you say, no, I'm going to use that to make me stronger. I'm going to use that to make me more determined, to to make me tougher. And that's what I've done. And I I guess I've kind of gotten through this through a couple things. One is the three Fs, and those are faith, family, and friends. And the other one is my four truths, the, the things that I've learned over these nine years that I've had cancer that I use to make decisions, whether it's, should I go on this therapy? Should I be involved in this project? Whatever it ends up being, I I use those. So those things have really kind of sustained me. I've I've always had a a deep faith in God. Um, My family, I I have a wife uh, and a daughter. My wife and I have been married for almost 28 years now. And our our daughter is, is 25 years old and is a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy. And a lieutenant in the military here. So I, I, I have a small family, immediate family. I have a couple of brothers and my mom's still alive. So, and then my friends, you know, and, and those are the people that, that I want around me. Those are the people that make me stronger. Those are the people who, 
in all honesty, kind of kick me in the butt when I get down and things like that. So, and, and I think you need those people, right? You need people to tell you the truth. It's like, no, Terry, you're totally off base. Even when I wrote the book, I had a best-selling author in the UK who I connected with. And when I wrote the book, I was like, I got to sell books. I got to sell books. I got to sell books. And he was like, no, 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 no. It's like, you're missing the point. He said, your job is not to sell books. Your job is to help people. If you help people, the books will sell themselves. And I was so glad he said that to me because he was right. You know, I didn't write the book to get rich or to get famous or anything like that. I wrote the book to help people, to make a difference. And he kind of put that in perspective for me. So those are the things that I've kind of used to, to get me through these last nine years. Are you able, are you willing to share, what was it, you called them, the four? The four truths? I, I, I am. I have them on a post-it note right here in my, on my desk. And I, and I see them every day, multiple times. So the first one is you need to control your mind or it will control you. The second one is you need to embrace the pain that we all experience in life and use it to make you a stronger and more determined individual. The third one, and I've, I've really added this one recently because I think it's important to sort of think of the end game in life. You know, what are, what are people gonna say about you at your funeral? Would your ancestors be proud of the life that you've lived? And so the third one is this, what you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people. And then the fourth one is pretty self-explanatory. As long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. So th those are things that I, I recently had a nurse who, who came to me and said, Terry, you know, this trial that you're on, this drug, yes, it's helping you, but it's also kind of kicking your butt. I mean, it's really, it's very hard on my body. I throw up, I shake, I have a fever, I have all kinds of nasty side effects from the medication. And she said, you know, Nobody will think anything less of you if you if you stop the drug, if you if you get off this. And I tried to explain the four truths to her, but I, I could tell I, I didn't really get it, get it into her, her brain, so to speak. But I told her, I said, you know, my doctor may take me off this drug or I may die on this drug, but I will never quit this drug because that's just not it's just not how I'm wired. You know, and I mean, I, I tried to explain to her, like, you know what, this pain that I have. It's going to end eventually. It may end through surgery, may end through medication. Quite frankly, it may end because I die. But if I quit or I give up or I give in to that pain, I'm always going to have pain with me. That pain is always going to stay with me. So I tried to explain that to her. I'm not sure I did a good job, but but that's kind of how I feel about that. I think those are so powerful, aren't they? they you know, they really are. I think for many people, perhaps listening to this or in the UK, that know the story of Alex Ferguson you may not have come across him he was the Manchester United coach very very successful for almost 20 years and he talked about you know how his sides they, they were never beaten they just ran out of time so the game ended but they never quit you know if the game had gone on long enough they would have won um, and I think it's that mindset isn't it you know it really is and I read a, read an excellent book uh, called Legacy I don't know if you've had the opportunity Jim to read Kerr, it the all black one yeah, I mean, that book so resonated. I mean, I remember reading it and I was just taking notes and I have like four pages of notes just on how people hire. I mean, you, do you hire for competency or do you hire for character? And, and, and the All Blacks, the New Zealand national rugby team, who by all accounts are probably one of the greatest franchise, sports franchises in the history of sports, 
they don't hire for how good you are technically as a rugby player. They hire for your character. You know, what kind of person are you? And, and they also admit that, you know what? We don't have all the answers. You know, that humility aspect of, I don't, I don't know. We're going to have to figure this out together as a team or as a family or, or whatever your, you know, your group dynamic is as, as a business. And, and uh, we're going to have to figure this out. I don't know the answer to this. And it's okay not to know. It's, it's okay not, you know, if you're a parent or you're a business owner or, you know, a boss, I don't I mean, I know I've done this, you know, I remember at Wendy's, you know, you would, you would have a problem. And the boss would come in, you know, we're going to call a meeting, we're going to we're going to talk about this. the boss would come in, and he's like, Okay, here's the problem. Here's how I see us fixing it, blah, 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 blah. Now, then he goes around the room. Now, what do you guys think? Now, who is going to tell the boss? No, you're wrong. I, I that's so we're going to go with the boss's plan. A better way to do that would be to the boss comes in and says, Okay, here's the problem. How are we going to solve this? And then be quiet and let other people in the room who have different expertise, let, let's talk about that. And that way, the boss isn't given the answer. The group is, the team is, the, the parents are, or whatever. We're going to get together and we're going to figure this out. So don't feel bad if you don't have all the answers. Like I said, I don't. So, it, you know, if you don't, it's okay. Yeah, I think you make a really good point there on a number of things. I think it's that having that character, that, that self-awareness, and the mental toughness to say, I don't have the answers and that's okay. But also to be that inclusive leader that says, Hey, you know, if I'm the smartest guy in the room, there's a problem. So, you know, I accept there'll probably be smarter people than you and that's okay. Get everyone's ideas forward. Um, and I think if more people took that approach, I just think the world would be a better place. I, I think there'd be a lot less stress and hassle. Yeah. But people think that, you know, if I'm the boss, I have to have all the answers. You, you don't. What you need is to be smart enough to realize you need to hire people who will find those answers for you. You know, you need to hire people that are smarter than you. You need to hire people that will argue with you. You, won't, you need to hire people that will say, no, that's not the way you should do it. You're wrong. But you also need to be good enough to say, when those people argue with you, you're not going to fire them because they did argue with you. That's the only way you're going to get better is if you take people who are smarter than you and they teach you something. It's okay, even if you're the boss. I've just been doing a lot of work with organizations around mental health and how to create that and, and have these authentic leadership style and these supportive conversations. And we were talking a lot about psychological safety, which is what you just described there, that ability to, to share, ask for these views and then not get upset if someone has a conflicting opinion with you or actually shows you that your idea was wrong and theirs is better. It's about creating that culture, that psychological safety. And teams like the All Blacks have that in spades, don't they? Oh, they do. And, and, you know, when I was in law enforcement, you know, mental health was really kind of something that was sort of coming to the forefront. You know, I, I mean, I, I remember my grandfather, my grandmother used to tell a great story, which you, we could never do this today, nor do I think you ever should. But in Chicago, the, the train uh, is, is called the elevated, the L, because it's above the city. It's not underground uh, like it is in London, like it is in New York and things like that. And, and the peeping Toms used to stand under the stairs and look up the dresses of the women as they would go up. Well, the police to solve this used to put steel tips on their shoes and just walk by and kick these, these people in the leg and basically break their leg and just keep walking. You could never get away with that, but that was a way a problem was solved back then. That's not a way it should be solved now, but mental health now 
is becoming something that's important for police, you know, and, and law enforcement and first responders, because we see things that we shouldn't see. You know, we see helplessness and hopelessness and ugliness and, and, and people at their worst. So, you know, you've got to be strong. And, and you know, I always, I, you know, some people medicate themselves, you know, they, they go to the bar after work, or they, they take drugs, or, or they commit suicide. I've, I've had people that I've worked with that, that have ended their life. And, and, and it's what a shame, because there are things, as you know, you know, helping organizations with mental health, there are things out there that can help you. And you don't have to be the toughest and the strongest person in the room thinking I can handle this. It, that toughness, that strength comes from your realization that I can't handle this, that I, that I need help and, and I need resources to help me get through this. Absolutely. I think it's a really important message. I also was really struck by what you said in terms of your second or your fourth truth, which was accepting pain. And I think it's interesting. I, I use a metaphor with my clients about dealing with emotions. You know, do you remember those? You ever tried to push a beach ball down under a, under a swimming pool? And you're kind of fighting with it, and it's really hard, and it's quite exhausting after a while. And then if your hands slip, woof, it flies up and hits you in the face. And I think that's the same with a lot of our emotions. We often try and subdue and fight, and we attach so much judgment to the emotion. I shouldn't be feeling this way, or I shouldn't be this weak, or I shouldn't be crying, or I shouldn't be. And we force it down, and then that becomes exhausting. And then at some point, it's going to pop up and hit you. And whether that's through burnout or an anxiety attack or, or something else. But actually, if we if we take the metaphor a bit stage further and, you know, if we let the ball just rest on the surface of of the pool and don't touch it very quickly kind of floats away, doesn't it? And I think that's the same with our emotions. And I, I think we can apply that to the pain and difficulties in life. I think if we think about things with a lot less judgment and just accept them, that it is what it is. And it doesn't mean I have to give in to it, but I can just accept it and then I can start to move forward. But I don't know if that resonates with you. And you know, if you think about it, our brains are hardwired to avoid pain and discomfort and just to seek pleasure. You know, to to the brain, the status quo is good. You're like, don't don't rock the boat. Where you are is good. But you're never going to grow in life if you just stay with the status quo. You've got to step behind that. You've got to step outside that. And and I know for me, you know, for these nine years and, and what I described in my cancer journey. I've had a tremendous amount of pain. And what I've learned is to take that pain and instead of running from it, to flip it inside, to, to use it as, as, as energy or to, to, to burn it as fuel to make me stronger, to make me tougher, to make me more determined. And, and I, I wish I could say, you know, here's how you do that. I, I, I don't know. I don't know how I did it. I just, I think I just had so much of it that I just got to the point where I was like, the heck with this. I'm not running from it. This is my life. I'm going to face it. I'm going to take it and I'm going to use it to make me stronger. And I think once I flipped that switch and, and looked at it in a different way, that it was okay. It was okay to have pain. It was okay. I mean, last Wednesday, I'm getting treatment. I'm sitting in my room and I'm crying like a baby, you know? And I remember a nurse came in and put her arms around me and I thought, you know what? No, I'm supposed to be the strong one. I wrote the book. I did, you know, and it's like, then I realized, no, nah, I'm just having a bad day today. It's okay. It's okay to have a bad day. What's not okay is to stay there. What's not okay is to continue to wallow and have a bad day after. You can use that ugliness, that, that, 
you know, things that scare you, that pain, you can use that and flip it inside of you. So don't feel that you've got to be Superman all the time. You don't. But you can't stay there because if you stay there, it's like quicksand. It'll just keep pulling on you and pulling on you and pulling on you. And eventually you'll be underwater mentally. I'm really enjoying just listening to you, finding it so motivating and inspiring hearing your your passion and enthusiasm for sharing that story. And, and I think hopefully giving people clues about how they can start to find their way of dealing whatever struggles or pain that they're dealing with, whether that's physical or emotional or, or in some other way. Um, you talked really quite movingly about, you know, finding your, your why was around law enforcement and you did what you did for your dad. And then age 37, you went into law enforcement and that was a real sense of purpose for you. I'm, you know, I'm thinking about, have you read Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning? I have. I guess you probably had. How did you find the meaning in, in your challenges in, and particularly around your cancer? What, did you find the meaning and how have you, how has that helped you? Yeah. I mean, I, I, a lot of times get the question. It's like, you know, who do you blame for this or why did you get this and stuff like that? And I'm like, I, I don't, I don't blame anybody. I mean, I, you know, well, well, you know, you must blame God. Why? I mean, I don't think God got up on a Tuesday morning and said things to do today, Terry Tucker cancer. I, I don't, I don't think that that happened, you know, and, and I, I just, this is, these are the cards that I've been dealt. I, I mean, I don't worry about, you know, I've asked my doctor, why did I get this? And I've had a genetic test of all ADA genes that doctors either know or suspect cause all different forms of cancer. And I have absolutely no mutations in any of my genes. So I don't know why I got it. And I don't worry about why I got it. I, I, I mean, just like I don't worry about die. I mean, I know I'm dying. I, I know, you know, I, I probably don't have a long time to live. And that's okay. Because I feel I found my purpose in life. I found the reason that my God put me on this earth. I lived that purpose. And so it's okay to die. I mean, it happened. We, we see it every year, you know, fall comes, things die. And then in the spring, they get reborn again. So it happens every year. We see it. Why are we so scared of something that we're all going to go through. And, and I remember when I had my, my, my most recent cancer in my leg and I had to have it amputated, I went to the mortuary, I went to the cemetery, I went to the church, I planned my entire funeral. And people were like, well, that, that's kind of defeatist. You know, I mean, and I kind of looked at them like, well, last time I checked, we're all gonna die. You know, nobody's working on a cure for life right now. So I said to them, you know, everybody's gonna die but not everybody's going to really live. And I think that's where the emphasis needs to be. Really live your life so that at the end, you're not scared. You're not worried. You're not upset. And, you know, there's a Native American Blackfoot proverb here in the United States that goes, when you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. And that's kind of where I am. I mean, if I died tomorrow, I'd be like, super, what's next? You know, I believe there's something after this. So for me, it's almost, and I'm going to have every psychologist and psychiatrist at my door by saying this, it's almost exciting to see what's on the other side of this life, because I've seen so much good, so much beauty in this world. I know it. I feel it in my soul. There's something else out there for all of us. And that's, that's really inspiring, I think, to hear that. 
what how would you describe your purpose now then you said you found your purpose in this and dealing with it in the way you are dealing it is it is it writing a book is it passing this brilliant little manual if you like for living sustainably excellently or or is it something more is it something private it's pretty simple it, it's really to put as much goodness as much peace as much love back into the world as i can i i mean i I look at it, one of the chapters I, I devoted in, in the book was about listening. And, and that was one thing as a hostage negotiator, you know, as a policeman, we're, we're usually face to face with a person. We get called for a run. And, 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 you know, and so I can look at that person and I can see visual clue. You know, if they're balling up their fists, maybe they want to fight me. Or if they're, you know, kind of looking around, maybe they want to run. And I can do things to mitigate that. I can sit them down, I can handcuff them, I can put them in my car, whatever is appropriate for why I'm there. But when you're negotiating, that person isn't with you. So you're trying to figure out what's going on based on what they're saying, what they're not saying, and how they're saying it. And that becomes an art. And one of the reasons I wanted to include the chapter on listening is because we all do, and I know I do it, I'm guilty of it a million times probably a day, is we don't listen to understand, we listen to reply, to respond. It's like, you know, Anthony, hurry up and say what you're going to say, because I'm going to get my two cents in there. No, listen to what you're saying, and why you're saying it. And I think if we did that, and stop screaming at each other, because we can't, we can't understand each other. If you're screaming at me, and I'm screaming at you, you can't understand me. I can't understand you, but if I take the time to listen, to listen to what you're saying and try to figure out why you're saying it, that's the start of a dialogue. That's the start of the ability to, to, to okay, that's how you feel. Let's talk about that. Why do you feel that way? Because I think you're nuts for feeling that way. You know, I mean, I'm not going to say that, but I mean, I may feel that way. But now listen to why I feel that that's not the case. Now we've got a dialogue going. Now we're talking to each other and we can solve any problem in this world if we would just talk to each other and not talk to, to respond, but talk or listen to understand. That's principle nine in the book, isn't it? Listening more than you talk. And I know when I was doing my coach training, Cranky, back in 2006, and I've been coaching since then, and that's probably the toughest thing is, is learning to really listen. And listen with your eyes as much as listen with your ears. And like you said, listen to what people aren't telling you and, and listen without, you know, suspending what you're going to say next, which even now as a coach, you know, I, I like to think I'm better at it, but it, uh, sometimes even in the coaching, I kind of think, oh, what's the question? And then go, no, hang on a minute. Just what are they telling me? And that was the same way as a negotiator. You know, you, you know you're there, and obviously the person's talking to you. They're probably having the worst day of their life, but you're not still quite sure what the problem is. So, you know, you kind of go down a rabbit hole. And if you're wrong, and I was wrong plenty, they'll tell you. You know, it's like, no, you idiot. That's not what I mean. I mean this. Okay. Because that was the other, the other big thing about this. And I think that this is important in any relationship, whether it's a business relationship, a family relationship, personal relationship. The biggest thing we had as negotiators was trust. That person had to trust us. That, and, and we never lied to people. People would say, all right, you know, I'll put the gun down and I'll come out, but you got to promise me I'm not going to jail. And I would have to say, I'm sorry, when you come out, you're going to jail. But then you deflect that and say, but hey, let's talk about 
why we're here. Well, let's talk about something else. So we never lied to people, especially because there was a very good chance we would negotiate with them, you know, a year from now or two years from now. And we never wanted them to say, you lied to me. So I don't trust you. Because if you don't have that trust in any relationship, you can't build on anything whatsoever. You're absolutely right about the trust bit. I also think that goes back to then the listening, isn't it? Because if you listen to somebody, they start to feel like you really heard them. They begin to trust you. And it stems from that. So much of the, of the arguments and things stems from miscommunication because we listen to, to reply and not listen to understand. It's probably uh, an impossible question. So feel free to say that's an impossible question, Anthony, or a silly one. Do you have a favorite of your 10 principles? Yeah, I do. And, and the principles are, are one through 10, but in, they're not in any particular order, you know. And, and the one that I like the best, and it's probably the one I'm the most guilty of, which is probably why I like it, is the one about most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. And I know I've done that. I, I know I've, you know, I want to do this, but it scares me. Mm, no, not going to do it. Well, that's that's letting my fear, you know, guide me. That's letting my, my, it's not letting my mind, yes, this would be a good move for me, but it scares me, so I'm not going to do it. Well, if it would be a good move for you, logically, you should do it. But your fear, your anxiety holds you back. And I, and I know, I mean, everybody I know has done that at some point in their life. Maybe we do it every day, but that's the one that I, that, I, that I like the most. It's the one because I'm the most guilty of it, I think. And that's principle number two um, for anyone that uh, wants to know. Um, and I think that fits with, you know, there's so many really interesting quotes that you pulled out from different people in the book and, and quotes that you've made as well that I just love. And it's not, to people know, it's not just a collection of quotes, this book is much deeper and I think much more invaluable than that. But the one that really resonated with me, and I shared it with my, my fiance earlier on today from Stuart Scott, don't downgrade your dreams to fit your reality. Upgrade your convictions to match your destiny. Yeah. I mean, and how many times do we do that? You know, it's like, I want to be here, but I'm willing to settle for here. Don't do that. Don't do that. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of the old, you know, shoot for, shoot for the moon because you'll end up amongst the stars kind of thing, you know? Don't downgrade that. You know, I, I want to do A, but I'm willing to settle for C. Don't, don't settle. Keep trying to get to A, because who knows? Maybe you'll make it to B, even though you may not make it to A. But if you settle for C, you're never going to get to B. Do you have a, is there another quote from somebody else that's in your book that really stands out for you that's a kind of favorite? There's a quote recently that, that's really kind of stuck with me. And it, it's, I don't know if I included it in the book or not. Yeah, I always say I should I should reread the book because it's come out, you know, since I've written it, it's like, you know, I sometimes forget like, oh, yeah, I forgot that story was in there or something like that. But the quote is this. It's um, a, a careful person. I want to be a little person follows me. I dare not go astray for fear they may go the same way. You know, you never know whoever you are and you may think you're, you know, the lowest of the low and I'm down and I'm depressed, but I can guarantee you. There is somebody somewhere that looks up to you in some way. I, I remember I had a nurse uh, who took care of me early in my treatment. And I, my, my dose of my drug has been half, so my side effects are not as bad. But when I was on the full dose, it, it was just ugly. And I remember her telling me this months later. She said, you know, when I first met you, I was going to get out of nursing. 
I'd had a good friend of mine that had passed away. I was really down. I was in a very dark place. I talked to my mom and dad. I was going to get out of nursing. I was going to go work for Amazon. And then I met you. And I saw what you go through. And I saw your story. And I knew I was in the right place. And I'm like, if she had never told me that story, I would have had no idea that my life had had an impact on her. So there are just so many people walking around out there that look and say, hey, you know, the Anthony doesn't even know who look up to him as a role model. There are those same people, no matter where you are or who you are in your life. So don't think that, you know, yeah, nobody cares about me. Nobody. I guarantee you there's somebody out there that thinks you have it all together and they want to be like you. So if you remember that, that kind of makes you feel no matter how down or depressed you are, hmm, somebody thinks I'm special. Somebody thinks I'm important. So I, I always remember that, that, you know, there are people that you never know who are looking up to you and who you're a role model for. Just always remember that. Wow. I think that's, yeah, it's a really powerful message, isn't it? It is. It's so easy to get caught up inside our heads and, and especially in the, I think, the world of social media to compare ourselves to other people and, and feel like we're a failure um, or feel like we don't measure up to lots of other people. And actually, you know, I always think there's always someone, I mean, I'm fairly short, I'm only five foot six, but there's always someone who's going to be taller than me. There's always someone who's going to be better looking than me. Um, but it doesn't mean that I can't affect somebody else's life in a positive way. Um, and I think we're so easy to get caught up in this, um, the fakeness and everything else. But like I say, just remembering that you can have a massive impact on somebody else's life, um, even if you don't even know it yet. And I think that's a really good, good point to end on. Um, Terry, where can people buy your book? Because it really is good. I, I highly recommend it. It's not very long. It's not, you know, um, it's not too long a book at all. It's only about, what is it, 100 and something pages, 104 pages. Um, packed for the really useful, well, the 10 principles themselves are a really guiding light. But where can people buy it? So you can pretty much get the book anywhere online that you can get a book. So you can get it from Amazon. You can get it from Barnes & Noble. You can get it at Apple iBooks. So pretty much anywhere online you can get a book. You can get Sustainable Excellence. And any plans to write another one? You know, I... I, I'm toying with another one, but but one of the reasons, and and don't get me wrong, I, I mean it was so much fun, and I and I think the book, I think it's helping people, but that book is focused on success. You know, success is what you and I do. You're a, you're a, you're a successful, you know, coach. Maybe I'm a successful, you know, author. Whatever. That, that's that's important, and I'm not saying it's not. But I think there's another word that that begins with S that's even more important. And that word significance. And I, you know, success is what we do. Significant significance is what we do for other people. I think you can be both. You can be successful and significant. But I think the next book for me, if I do write one, is going to be focused more on significance. How can we be significant in the life of other people? So that's that's kind of what I'm thinking for book number two. And it's funny I was going to end that there, but you make a good point about you said this is about success. What does success mean to you? I'll, I'll give you I'll give me another saying that I, I remember when I was a little kid. And, and, and this was from a basketball coach, one of the more successful ones here in the United States. And this is how he defines su success. Is it John Wooden? It is John Wooden. Oh, I'm so glad you said that because I love that definition. Please share it with our listeners. Go on. So success is peace of mind, which is a direct result of self-satisfaction in knowing that you did the best to become the best that you're capable of becoming. 
I've never heard another definition of success that, that, that is better than that one. I would completely agree. You know, I, I looked for years at what was success mean and different definitions. And, and I think it's only as I got a bit older and perhaps more mature um, that I really resonate most with that one. Absolutely. And, and yeah, John Wooden's book on, on lead, well, all his books are absolutely fantastic. I think they're well worth. And his success pyramid is really worth looking into as well. The other one I do like, and I don't think it's as good as Wooden's, but I think it's still useful to reflect on, is by Earl Nightingale. And he simply said, he's another American, he simply said, um, success is the pursuit of a worthy goal. Not necessarily attainment of that goal, but it's the pursuit of a worthy goal. Yeah, success has nothing to do with getting what you want. Success, it's the journey. It's not, it's not the destination. Success is that journey in between when you start and, and, your, and your end game. You know? and, and you realize, and I think, as you said, as you get older, it's the journey that's more important than, than the goal that you obtain. Terry, it's been brilliant. You know, I came to, to recording our session today. It's the end of the day for me in the UK. I spent seven hours today training people on Zoom calls. So I'll be honest, I came in, my energy levels were down. I was a bit lethargic and a bit tired, but looking forward to it. But you've left me enthused and motivated and really inspired. And I hope and I'm sure that, uh, that you're going to have that effect on, on people that listen to this. So thank you for taking your time been a pleasure and a joy and a privilege to get to know you very briefly and wish you all the very best thank you for having me on it, it's been a lot of fun and like i said hopefully between our conversation we're going to make a difference in somebody's life well i hope you enjoyed that episode of that conversation with terry i found it hugely uh, inspiring and energizing i think his zest for life just pours through the microphone for me so I think I wanted to reflect on, on my takeaways from what Terry shared with us. Uh, and, and I've got a few that I'd like to share with you. I think number one for me was the importance of purpose. And we've probably heard a lot of that about that recently. I know I have. Um, but it is and how it's so fundamental to, to being resilient and also to being happy. Because when we can live our life with purpose, that just gives us so much. It's so energizing. But also I think the really important point that Terry made was that you can have a job that doesn't fulfill your purpose as long as you have found some purpose outside of that whether that's writing or gardening or volunteering or whatever that is I think a lot of people talk about how you've got to live your purpose through your job I think that's great if you can do that I know I've been able to do that but it wasn't until the age of 40 when I found that out but I think it's okay that if you don't and that you, as long as you can feel you fulfill your purpose through some other ways I think number two for me from the takeaways was it's okay not to have all the answers and to feel pain. And he talked about how the other day he was crying like a baby. Um, but it's what we do with that pain that matters. And he, he spoke quite openly about that. And I think that's my second key takeaway, that it's accepting that we might feel pain. We might be in a dark place, but not to quit. And how can we use that to energize us and move us forward? The third takeaway for me was his four truths. Uh, to live by especially number three that what we leave behind is what we weave in the hearts of other people what we leave behind is what we weave in the hearts of other people and I think for me reflecting on what if I spent more time weaving positive feelings into the hearts of those people around me rather than focusing on myself or what if we spend more time weaving positivity into the hearts of others rather than focusing on ourselves. How would that change our behaviours and the choices that we make?
Thanks for listening to today's episode. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. It only takes a moment, but it makes a massive difference to the visibility of the show and how many people we can reach. You know, our mission is to help people develop the mental fitness so that they can achieve more than they thought themselves capable of. So it'd be great if you could do that. A big thanks to Charlotte Foster Podcast for her hard work on producing the show. You can connect with her on LinkedIn. And the music for show is Where to Run by Strength to Last, created by the musical talents of Adrian Walther, a Canadian living in Nashville. Check out his music on Spotify and YouTube Music.